Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to the Duke Basketball Report Podcast, episode 180. 180 of these in the books is in the next hour or so as we finish things up. I am Jason Evans. I'll be hosting this week, and it's an unusual situation. Um, I, I think we sort of alluded to this last week. Um, I am in Atlanta, where I always am. Um, actually, the irony is, over the weekend, I was in Durham, even though Duke wasn't in Durham. <laughs> but I had I had business in Durham, and so I was uh, I was I was at the home of the Blue Devils, even though the Blue Devils were not home. Um, but my other colleagues are in some unusual places. Donald Wine, Donald, tell the people where you are and what is going on with you right now. Well, first of all, Jason, I should say good morning to you because it's morning where I am. I am standing uh, in front of the Kamehameha Third statue in Honolulu, Hawaii. Yes, I have been here for just over a week. I believe uh, the last podcast I alluded that I was leaving for the airport as soon as we finished recording. And I've been here for the last week uh, taking in the sights of uh, the 50th state, the Aloha State. So uh, it has been so beautiful here. I've had a great time. I have a couple more days before I head back uh, to D.C. So I am recording to you from a park in Honolulu because why wouldn't I? Yes, and and I love that you are in Hawaii and still doing the podcast. I'll be kind of honest. If I was in Hawaii, I'm not sure I could make it to the podcast. But Donald, you are putting in the effort, and I definitely appreciate it. Hey, man, I, it was a struggle to get up this morning. Uh, not that I didn't want to talk to you, but there's only so much of Hawaii left uh, on my vacation that would take full advantage, which is why I'm doing it outside. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm sure the weather is way better than it is in Atlanta right now. The third <laughs> yes, member sir. of the crew, the, the third member of the crew, Sam Klein, is, as we mentioned last week, in Vietnam. Wow. Um, but Sam recorded some content for us this week. Sam, tell us a little bit about what's going on with you right now in Vietnam. Hey, Donald and Jason. I am sorry that I haven't been on the last couple episodes. I am coming to you. We've done some pre-recorded takes for me here because I can't be on live with you. I am currently in the city formerly known as Saigon, Vietnam. I've been over here in Southeast Asia for a little over a week now, just traveling with some of my friends from school, a handful of whom actually graduated from UNC. Um, so I'm hanging out with, let's not call them the enemy. Uh, we'll just call them our friends from across town. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'll give some some thoughts about the trip maybe at the end of the show or, or later on. Uh, I haven't gotten to watch the game since I've been over here. Annoyingly, ESPN or watch ESPN is blocked on my uh, internet source here in Vietnam. So and I don't have a fancy enough VPN to tune in to watch the games. But I have looked at the box scores and been reading some of the post-game summaries, so I am somewhat plugged in, and I'll, I'll give a few thoughts along the way about what I have seen, at least in my limited interaction, and, and hopefully you guys can fill in the rest for, uh, for the listeners. So I, while I hate the fact that Sam is with a bunch of Tar Heels, at least he's having a good time in Vietnam. Not bad, not bad at all. Uh, very, very cool. Uh, so folks, uh, is it, this is week, it okay we... to be in Hawaii? In is it okay to be in Hawaii and still feel jealous of what Sam is, uh, is doing right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think a little bit, a little bit, but I, I'm allowed to feel jealous of both of you guys. Um, yeah. Anyway, we're going to get to what really matters this week, which is um, uh, in terms of looking back 
two huge, huge wins for the Blue Devils. In terms of looking forward, we're going to preview uh, what's coming up. And um, uh, we got a, a special little bit that we're going to do on one of the games that's coming up. But but first, um, Duke, uh, as I mentioned, had two games this week. It started out with um, uh, the the not the beginning of our ACC slate, but the beginning of our ACC-only slate of games. The rest of the season, we'll play ACC teams and nothing but until we get to um, hopefully a postseason tournament. <laughs> I think there's a pretty good chance we'll be playing in a postseason tournament. Um, and that all began with the Boston College Eagles coming and visiting Duke. The Blue Devils win, wow, 88-49. to um, A absolute thrashing uh, by, by close to 40 points. We almost doubled them. Uh, Donald, give me your takeaway. What what was the what's the biggest thing you saw in in the matchup with Boston College? A game that was really it was over at halftime, forty five to nineteen at halftime. It was game over at that point. Well, Jason, I think the intensity was evident from the opening tip, and that's why we blew the doors off of Boston College and really were we had run away with it in the first ten to fifteen minutes of the game. One thing that I always look at is inside. Vernon Carey obviously was great. He he didn't score a lot of points, but his presence allowed other people to shine. And that one person that really took advantage of that was Matthew Hurt. Uh, 25 points. He was 5 for 10 from 3. He really just destroyed them from every angle on offense. And I think that, you know, again, we, we talk about who's going to step up, who's going to be the guy, and it's always someone different. Matthew Hurt in the starting lineup replacing Joey Baker, who had been in the starting lineup for a couple games. Matthew Hurt earns the spot and, and really played well. He, he led the team in minutes. He was brilliant on both sides of the floor, and really they had no answer for him. On defense, I think what we saw was we saw the homecoming of Derek Thornton. We had talked about it before. He obviously played at Duke. This is his first time back since he left. And most of the offense for Boston College runs through him, and he was frustrated. He only ended up with six points. I believe he was three of 12 from sh uh, shooting. And when that happens... If your main guy can't score, if, if and he's frustrated, it trickles down to the rest of the team. I think that is why Boston College was so out of it early. And like I said, our intensity, coupled with that, made it, it was a blowout by halftime. And even in the second half, it, it seemed like Boston College didn't, you know, anytime they wanted to try and catch up, we would stuff, we would stifle them with our defense, take the ball, go down the court and score. It was a blowout uh, in all sense of the word for an ACC team. And that's how you want to end the decade. I mean, this was a late game. Uh, on December 31st, right before people are starting to worry about the new year and, and, and ringing in a new decade, that was a way to end the 2010s with a monster blowout of Boston College. Yeah, by the way, I love the fact that with that game, Duke won uh, its 300th game of the decade. I'm not sure who it was that went back. And it's not that it'd be a really difficult thing to check, but uh, we have exactly 300 wins in the decade. Think about 30 wins per season. Folks should really look, you know, look at different teams um, look at look at Coach K's career, um, you know, season by season wins and stuff like that. Winning 30 games a season is not easy. You can have a really successful season and win 27, 28 games for Coach K to win uh, 30 on average per per year over the decade is is pretty remarkable and pretty cool. Um, and I love you. You know, you hit on to me the most important thing toward the end of your comments. The thing I want to talk about with this game was primarily the defense, because we held an opponent to 49 points. And and I want to be clear, like Virginia this year, everyone's talking about the fact that Virginia is holding these teams to less than 50 points um, left and right, sometimes less than 40 points. Um, Virginia's playing at a snail's pace. 
Virginia is, you know, basically walking the ball up the court and not shooting until there's two seconds left in the shot clock every time. So for them to hold teams under the 50 points, it's impressive. I'm not saying Virginia's defense isn't great. It is great. But for them to do that, playing that the slowest tempo in all of college basketball isn't nearly as impressive as Duke holding teams under 50 while playing. We play the 89th fastest tempo. We play one of the 100th fastest tempos in the country. In other words, Duke plays at a fast pace. So there are more possessions in a Duke game. And for us to do what we did to Boston College is that much more impressive. And and getting back to what I was starting to say, you brought out the reason for it. And this is the thing that Duke has been so great at this year. We cut off what the opponent wants to do. Specifically, we cut off the guys who want to do it. Derek Thornton shoots three for 12 in this game. Stephon Mitchell, and and look, in our preview, those are the two guys that we highlighted, Derek Thornton and Stephon Mm -hmm. Mitchell. We said, hey, these are the dudes you got to worry about. These are the, you know, these are the key to to their offense. Derek Thornton shoots three for 12. Stephon Mitchell shoots 0 for 6 from the field. Stephon Mitchell had, Duke was in his head so much, he went 1 for 5 from the free throw line. Dude scored one point in this game. Now, he's not a huge scorer. I mean, a lot of how he contributes is rebounds and steals and blocks and things like that. Um, and he's, he, you know, he, he's a player who impacts the game other than scoring. But when you take two major leaders on that team, two of the guys that, that on offense they're counting on to, to make things happen for them, and, and combined, those guys go three for 18. Wow. I, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise that, that Duke throttled Boston College as much as we did. And then the other thing I wanted to highlight on defense, so Duke has become one of the best. I haven't – I should have the stats in front of me. I don't have the stat in front of me. Duke's like one of the top three or top five teams in the country at defending the three-pointer, at not allowing teams to shoot three-pointers and certainly not allowing them to make them. Boston College, three for 18. 16% shooting from three against Duke. Um, I mean – now BC is not a great three-point shooting team, uh, but they're they're usually better than three for eighteen, and and the Blue Devils have just I, I'm so impressed with our defense this season. Um, I, you know I I love on offense it's a different guy every every game, and we talked about that. And this was Matthew Hurt's game, and great to see him have that kind of performance. I mean I I talked in the preseason about you know the way I liked his shot. He releases it so high. There's so little energy. Um, you know so so much economy of movement on Matthew Hurt's three-pointer that I said, this is the kind of thing that's easily for to, to replicate again and again and again. And you can tell that he's going to have games where he hits four or five or six three-pointers. Lo and behold, he hit five three-pointers in this game. Um, and, and, and it's great. It's great to see different guys succeeding. I mean, it's, it's unreal how many different guys are succeeding on offense. But to me, the, the hallmark of this team is quickly becoming the defense and how – you know, great we are at stopping the opposition from doing what they want to do. Jason, I think to, to summarize the defense, the, the old saying, cut off the head of the snake and the body will wither. That's what we're doing. We're going after the head of the snake every single game and taking that head out of the game and the rest of the team wilts. And that's really how we've been winning a lot of these games so handily. And the head of the snake against Miami, um, we did it to them again. So let's move on to the next game. Um, a team that Donald loves, the Miami Hurricanes. He doesn't love them as much as the Duke Blue Devils, but uh, I, I feel confident in saying your second favorite team in the ACC. Blue Devils go down to Miami, road game, a team that um, Miami gives us trouble in the past. We have trouble winning at Miami. Remember last year it took a uh, hurt, 
a, a, a heroic comeback. Um, uh, you know, we were down a lot in that game to the Miami. It seems like they always, um, uh, you know, make it tough for us when we're at Miami. And Duke, again, just absolutely throttles the opposition. 95 to 62. I, that is to win on the road against a team that most people think is in the top half of the ACC by 33 points. Tremendously impressive effort by the Blue Devils. And I was talking about the head of the snake. Donald and I were mentioning that Chris likes their 5'7", do-everything point guard who always has the ball in his hands, shoots two for 15. Boy, if you thought we made life difficult for Derek Thornton, what we did to Chris likes, two for 15 was truly impressive. And then... Uh, you know, the other stat that I highlighted, three-point shooting. Um, uh, if you thought the uh, the 18% or whatever it was that Miami, uh, sorry, that uh, Boston College shot was was bad, wait until you hear uh, about what uh, Miami did. Miami 2 for 12. They hit 16% of their threes. Um, it, was, uh, it was a bad time for Miami. Uh, Donald, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you um, tell me a little bit more about what happened to your Hurricanes when they played your Blue Devils. Well, the first thing, again, uh, I know it's a broken record, but Vernon Carey, once again, this was different, though, because Vernon Carey, as a lot of you know, is from Miami. His dad played at the University of Miami before he played for the Miami Dolphins. He lives there. He's from there. This was his homecoming. Miami desperately wanted him in recruiting, and he lost out or they lost out to Duke in that regard. And he wanted to show them that they lost out on a, on a champion. And, and that's what he played like. Uh, last night uh, against the Hurricanes. 24 points. The man was everywhere. And again, his presence on offense and on defense really makes every team have to work around him. And that allowed everybody else to shine. One thing I will note when you're talking about Chris Likes, Chris Likes is a really good shooter and he's a great passer. And both of those were way, way down uh, against Duke last night. And I think we, we talked about early in the early game, he was starting to kind of get some angles and work some passes. And, uh, you know, they had nice little momentum. I think it was like 11 to 10 or 12 to 11. And then we brought in Jordan Goldwire. And Jordan Goldwire said, nope, no more Chris likes for the rest of this game. And he shut him down quickly and effectively. And it really, again, once that was cut off, Miami withered. And that's when we decided to take off. I, I think I really want to credit, you know, everybody on the team for what they did but especially Jordan Goldwire coming in and basically saying this guy will not be scoring the rest of the night and achieving that goal between him and Trey Jones. That is the intensity that you want to see on the road again in a place that is very difficult for us to play. We've had some losses there in the past, some big losses there in the past. And when it comes to Miami, they always give a Herculean effort against the Blue Devils. That was not present last night because their their guys that normally lead the team were out of it by the time we hit the under 12 timeout. And that's why we have been, again, we have been so dominant on defense and that feeds our offense game set match. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned the Jordan Goldwire thing. It's like, I swear, Donald, it's, it's like you're reading my mind I know. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, this week, because the thing that impressed me about Jordan Goldwire, and I was going to mention this about the game, when he came in, you saw that what Duke did was Duke said, okay, we're not going to let Chris Likes even get the ball. Um, mm -hmm. He was playing deny defense on on Chris Likes. Now, obviously, you're not going to be able to stop the guy from getting the ball all the time. And and Likes, you know, Likes took his shots. Uh, and, and he had a couple, you talk about the passing. I know he had at least one just stunningly good assist 
Um, but he only ends up with four assists total in the game. Um, uh, by the way, Miami had a total of six assists in this ballgame. That's that's really bad. Uh, they just weren't able to get into any kind of semblance of an offense. But but uh, Goldwire cut off likes and wasn't letting him start the offense. And and you're right. Miami was absolutely befuddled. They, they just didn't know what to do. And, and as a result, the Blue Devils uh, just crushed them. And, and I, there's a good friend of mine, Andy Layton, was, was at this game. He took his sons. For the first time, his, uh, his two kids got to go see a Duke basketball game. And he was texting me throughout the game. And, and he was like, there's no one here. Uh, you know, he goes, this is a nice arena. And Miami's nine and three coming into this ball game. You know, they've won like five in a row. And no one has shown up for this game. Like, they all knew we're going to get our butts kicked by Duke. I'm not going to bother to show up. He said there were entire sections of the arena that had tarps across them, you know, seats that had tarps on them. So they weren't even bothering to try to sell those seats. Um, he said the place was quieter than card gym during a pickup game. That it was like surreal. And that the loudest person in the, the only thing you could, the only thing you could hear most of the time was the PA announcer trying to get the crowd excited. Now he pointed out that a good 30 to 40% of the crowd was Duke fans, <laughs> yep. but mm -hmm. come on, Miami, you got to do better than that. I mean, this is Duke. You, you know, you got to bring the fans and, and they clearly didn't. And, you know, as a result, when their team was struggling, they, they did not have any, uh, you know, emotion from the crowd to help, help lift them up. Hey, I and I will say, that, I will say, Jason, yeah, go ahead. because, of, you know, usually for, you know, for the Wasco Arena back when I was in school, the Bank United Center, but their stadium, their arena, it only seats like seven to eight thousand. They actually used to expand it to nine thousand when Duke or North Carolina came yeah, to town, because yeah. that would be the only times that that stadium would be sold out. And Saturday night, I get it. It's Saturday night. You're in Miami. The new year just happened. You're probably out partying. But. That was a big game. That was their Super Bowl game. And for that, and I, I'm sure they were probably kicking themselves to say, oh, man, this is at a terrible time. But for them to not be able to fill that arena and provide the atmosphere that they would need to try and take on a number two Duke team, that is, that's concerning to me as a Miami alum, but as a Duke alum, is great to see. I mean, on the broadcast, anytime Duke made a basket, you heard loud, audible cheers. And that tells me that there was a lot of people in the building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I should note that um, Sam had some comments about Miami. We, we don't want to exclude my good friend Sam, even though he's in Vietnam. So uh, here, what his, here's what his thoughts were on the game. As far as the Miami game goes, first of all, it's great to see that Duke is off to a fast start in ACC play. We are looking strong so far, and I know that there have been some concerns the last couple of years, especially for some of these teams that are filled with younger players about going on the road in the ACC. They've now taken care of business at Blacksburg, a place that has given Duke some trouble in the past, and also Coral Gables, which it didn't seem like, at least from the recaps that I was reading, that it was quite as rowdy in favor of Miami as it normally is. But this is certainly a place where Duke has had a little bit of trouble in the past, and it was nice to see that Duke was able to handle an overmatched team, basically, you know, from at, at least to, from the end of the first half through the second half. You know, Miami was able to hang with Duke for the first 10, 15-ish minutes of the game, but then Duke was able to pull away, uh, making a lot of shots, getting especially shots at the rim, I think is really important for this team. Obviously, we've talked about the potential for a player like Vernon Carey. It seems like he's 
starting to round into form here as ACC play gets going. He's he's really able to to fill it up and and be the focal point of the offense that we expected. I know that we've talked a handful of times on this show about how much he worked with Jalil Okafor early in the season and, and sort of the comparisons we'd like to make between those players. And it seems like that is sort of coming true with his ability to run the offense, produce a lot of points, get other guys involved, get those rebounds, all the things that are kind of making him a complete player and and as good as we could have reasonably expected him to be here at the beginning of the season. I think the other interesting thing to look at, and hopefully you'll shed more light on this, is how much Kay continues to tinker with the rotation. It's interesting that even even as the team is playing well, he still feels like it's necessary, perhaps for matchups or or just because he feels like he needs more data, to be changing the starting lineup and to be changing the rotations around even into ACC play. I certainly expected at this point in the season that even if the team wasn't playing as well as we might have expected early in the season, and I'd say to this point for the most part they have, even if they hadn't gotten to that point, that the rotation would be a little bit more solidified. Coach K obviously likes to have a rotation. He likes to know who his starters are, which bench guys come off in at which points in the game, uh, which which guys he sort of needs in, in which spots. And it seems like even now, even with the team playing well, he hasn't entirely solidified that group. I'm surprised by it, but I'm also encouraged by it because it means that he is sort of actively adapting to the matchups to his reactions from perhaps what's happening in practice, the kind of stuff that we don't see. And it's sort of refreshing to see that even as experienced as he is with dealing with lots of talented players, he's still trying to figure out exactly how this team works. Because I think, as we've said, this team has a little bit more depth at multiple positions, even more so than I think a lot of recent Duke teams that you know, have have had the ability to have different guys start and different guys come off the bench, different guys provide um, sort of different skill sets at different points in the game. So I'm I'm enjoying that <laughs> the rotation is as not solidified as maybe we expected it to be, even if there's a little bit of me that's thinking like, oh, I wish that we just sort of knew what this was supposed to look like at this point. But there's still obviously a lot of time before the postseason comes around. So there's still time for Coach K to tinker. And the downside to the ACC sort of being down across the board is that Duke doesn't have as many opportunities to play really high quality competition as I think they've gotten used to in recent seasons. The upside to that is perhaps there are more opportunities for Coach K to experiment with these rotations and get different guys on the floor with different combinations of players to see what sort of makes the most sense while not having to sacrifice as much of the um, the sort of most important minutes in the season because, quite frankly, given the schedule this year, there just aren't as many of those opportunities. And I'm really glad that Sam concluded that by talking about the rotations and the fact that nothing is set yet. In both these games this week, now granted they're both blowouts, um, so, you know, so you're, you're still not necessarily seeing what, uh, you know, what coach K is going to go with in a close, close, close competitive game. But in, in both these games, we did not see anyone play 30 minutes. Um, you know, once you, you know, we're getting guys getting to 26, 27 minutes, maybe. And, and, and that's kind of it. Um, and then coach K is finding a way to work everybody else in for double digit minutes. 
And I'm just, I'm, I'm so impressed. It's unlike anything we've seen from, from Duke in past years. I, I just, I, 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 I said to someone this weekend when I was up in Durham, I was like, you know, I have watched with the exception of one or one or two games a decade. I've seen every Duke basketball game since I was a freshman in 1985. Um, and so I've got a lot of Duke basketball under my belt. I cannot recall a Duke team that so consistently went this deep. To, con uh, to be going 10 deep every single game is just stunning. And the amazing part about it is you can't tell me who's going to have the big game. Uh, it, it feels like Vernon Carey, and Vernon Carey is probably our most consistent guy in terms of offensive games. And Trey Jones is, is obviously going to get minutes every single game and is awesome on defense. But you can't tell me beyond that that you know who's going to be next. You can't tell me that you knew coming to the Miami game that Cassius Stanley was going to be the guy to go for 20 points. and you know, like he, he hit his first six or seven shots from the field. Um, he was all over the place. Uh, you know. You can't tell me that that you, you knew going in the Boston College game that Matthew Hurt was going to hit five three-pointers. Um, everybody's getting chances, and everybody's producing. And it's it, it, it's just fun from a fan standpoint. It's incredibly fun to watch. So, Jason, on that, and, and to kind of wrap it up, I, I think you're right in the sense that this has been a unique situation where we have 10, even 11 guys that can come off the bench and contribute or start and contribute. I think what we're at is kind of something that we haven't really seen from Coach K in quite a long time. We have a team that normally by this time, he knows who his starters are. He knows where his, fit, his sixth man, his seventh man, and sometimes even his eighth man. And we know who the, what the rotation is going to be and how they're going to get into the game. We don't know that yet here. We have a couple of guys. We have Trey Jones and Vernon Carey who are surefire every night starters. Everyone else has been kind of rotating in because he wants to see who is more effective when they start. Who is more effective when they come off the bench? Who's more effective with 20 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes, as opposed to 10 minutes? He's working that out right now. And the problem, it's not really a problem, it's a really good problem to have, is that everyone's giving him a reason to keep thinking about it. Because last night against Miami, everybody who played scored. Everybody who played contributed on the defensive end. Everyone who played gave something to make Coach K wonder, okay, is this the set rotation? Who works best with what? And I think this week when we uh, go to uh, when we go to Georgia Tech and then we play Wake Forest, we may see some more of that tinkering just so that when we get to the harder half of the schedule, we have Louisville coming up in a couple of weeks. We have uh, and then we'll have February pretty soon. I mean, this thing is going to roll by really quickly. We're going to eventually see him narrow this down to how this guy, how these guys play, who starts, who comes off the bench, who's more effective in, in what spots. But we haven't seen that yet because everybody has been effective in every spot. And that is why this team is so unique. Well, and I'll tell you the other thing that I just realized. I think I don't think Javin Delorier has started a game yet. Every other guy on this team, you know, in the top ten, um, love you, Justin Robinson. But you know, talking about the top ten guys, uh, the other nine guys have all absolutely started games this season. Uh, in fact, uh, I think Joey Baker's only started one of them, but everyone else has like started multiple games. And mm -hmm. uh, and you're you're right. It's Coach K hasn't figured it out. And I don't know that he necessarily feels like he needs to or wants to because he's getting such good production and they work so well together. Um, I, I, I'll tell you, there was a there was a really interesting moment in this game. Holly Rowe, the ESPN sideline reporter, 
uh, was talking about something, and she had a line um, that she said was one of her favorite lines that she's heard about basketball. And and I agree with her, and I wanted to repeat it. She said that Coach K told her in the in her their pregame conversation, he said, "Talking is the music of the game, and if you can't talk, you can't dance." Which I think is such a great line, mm-hmm. and it so much sums up Coach K's philosophy. You always hear them talking about communication, and it's it it's the hallmark of defense. You must be able to talk and communicate. To, to play good defense, especially the way Coach K likes to play defense. And so I, I just love talking is the music of the game. If you can't talk, you can't dance. For Coach K to say that, and then the reason I bring it up now is because I think what we're seeing with this team is that everybody on the team has learned how to talk, has learned how to communicate. And as a result, Coach K is like, well, you know, I, I don't know who I, I don't know who to take out. I don't know who to put in because they all do it well. And and that's it is a luxury we we just haven't had before at Duke. They get kicked out of every single library in America. That's 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 the epitome of a good basketball team. <laughs> I love it. Good line. Hey folks, this edition of the DBR podcast, the first DBR podcast of 2020 is brought to you by our favorite law firm out there, the Bird Campbell Law Firm, two former Duke roommates who uh, who are now practicing law in the states of Florida and Texas. We urge you, please, if you have a business legal need, reach out to Bird Campbell at B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Bird Campbell means business. And even if you don't have legal needs, reach out to them and tell them, go to hell, Carolina, go to hell. All right, Donald, it's time to look ahead. We are done looking back. Time for us to look ahead to the two games that Duke has this week as we continue the ACC slate. The first of those games is Duke playing Georgia Tech here in Atlanta. I, by the way, will be going to the game. I'll be going, um, I'll be representing the podcast at the Georgia Tech game like I did last year. I'll go in the locker room after the game and hopefully have some fun audio for all of you to hear from the players. Um, But uh, we, we cannot preview, we cannot talk about Georgia Tech without talking about what happened with them over the weekend, because Georgia Tech went to North Carolina um, and uh, beat the Tar Heels pretty resoundingly. Uh, 96 to 83 is the final score as Georgia Tech beats North Carolina. Um, It was a game that was almost non-competitive. Tech jumped out to, I want to say it's 27 to 6 at one point. Carolina went more than 10 minutes without scoring a single field goal. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm talking about this more than we would usually talk about a pass game to preview a game is because before we get to the Georgia Tech preview, uh, we want to talk a little bit about Roy Williams, the head coach of North Carolina. Folks, if you have not gone online to YouTube or, or, or actually just go to the, the DBR front page, the Basketball Report front page, because they've got a story there about – um, with with YouTube video of Roy Williams post game press conference, it is a doozy. It, it is just remarkable to see a coach this down on his team and this willing to throw his team under the bus. He starts out. Roy begins the press conference. His first few words are, "I'm the coach, and it's my responsibility." 
And then he proceeds to put responsibility on his players by again and again and again, over and over again, saying, well, I know I've taught them how to do this, but they're not doing it. I know I've instructed them that they're supposed to do this, but they're not doing it. And I, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it's crazy. It's stunning. What, what did, what did you think of this, this Roy, this sad Roy Williams news conference? There's two things that I want to start with. The first thing is there are two words in that eight minute and 10 second press conference that he had. There's two words he did not say. Those two words were Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech Ooh. came out and, and just destroyed them. That's straight up. And any coach in America would at least, before they get into something like this, would go out and say, hey, credit to the other team. They played well. This has nothing to do with them. You know, we, you know, they came out, they played their game. Congrats to them. If Coach K had come out and done an eight-minute press conference and did not mention the fact that the other team blew the doors off them, he would get vilified in the press. So, Jason, I'm in Hawaii, and you were the one to tell me about this maybe 15 minutes before we started recording, that this was even a thing. If Coach K had said something like this or had a press conference like this where he did not vilify or, you know, he vilified his own team and did not even express any sort of credit to the other team, we would be talking about this way earlier than now because it would have hit everything. I mean, J- uh, Sam in Vietnam would have heard about it by now. And at this point, uh, I'm not sure what is wrong with this USC team. I'm not going to be the one to say I'm an expert of their team because I don't watch many of their games. I'm like that. But when it comes to you know throwing guys under the bus, not giving the other team the credit that they deserve for coming into your building and, and just destroying you, those are things that are concerning, and if I'm a UNC fan, I'm really concerned about the direction of this year's team and the coach that runs it. And I know it may be a little extreme, but I think when it comes to that, I mean, we're talking about two basic things. If he had, again, if he had come out in the first 30 seconds where you say, hey, congrats to Georgia Tech, they're a really good team, they showed up, they were prepared, and credit to their, to their players and their coaching staff, and then launched this, no one would care. It'd be like, yep, that's he did exactly the, the two things that he's supposed to do. But he didn't do that. And then taking saying it's his fault and then taking credit and then all of a sudden putting it on his players. Uh, let's see if these players actually play for him the next game. Remember, next weekend, Clemson comes to town, who has never beaten UNC at the Dean Dome. This could be the year that this happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, never beaten UNC in Chapel Hill, period, end of story. Not just yes, in Dean Chapel Dome, Hill, of course. Right. Yes, Chapel right. Hill. Dean Dome, Carmichael, pickup court in the backyard, doesn't matter. Clemson has never won in Chapel Hill. And you have to think they have a chance next weekend to, to get it done. Uh, I, I'll tell you that you, you said you, you, know, you don't watch enough Carolina to be able to figure them out. I, I think even people who watch Carolina can't figure them out. It, it's, it's bizarre that – because like, like when they lost to Wofford, um, a week and a half ago or so, two weeks ago, uh, they lost that game 68 to 64. So uh, they gave up 68 points, uh, you know, so clearly defense wasn't the big problem against Wofford. It was that they couldn't score. And, and then, uh, and, and the game right before that, they lost to UVA 56 to 47. Again, um, UVA scores 56 points. That's, that's not a, a big defensive problem for Carolina. Uh, and then you turn around and you lose to Georgia Tech 96 to 83. Suddenly you figured out how to score. You got 83 points. That's enough to win almost, you know, like a bunch of these games that Carolina's lost. They score 83 points. They're going to win those games. But you give up 96, 96 to a Georgia Tech team that just isn't that great a team. Um, 
it's not an offensive firepower uh, fire. You know, this Georgia Tech team is not a good offensive team. Uh, it, so no one can figure out what this Carolina team is doing. They are they are now one and two in the ACC, eight and six overall. They've got some very winnable games coming up. So their next three games are uh, Pitt at home, Clemson at home, like you mentioned, and then at Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, and and over the those next ten days, they they, they got to win those three games. Um, otherwise, things start to look really dire for Carolina. And I'm talking dire, not just in terms of making the NCAA tournament, but like finishing in the top half of the ACC. I'm talking dire like you could start looking at maybe they, they're eight and six. They may not even make the NIT. I'm not saying that's likely. And this is a team that's talented enough to 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 beat, especially most of these bottom of the half of the ACC teams. But whew, it's it's not good for them right now, and it's clear that no one can figure out, especially Roy Williams cannot figure out, what is wrong with them. Um, before we finish this and get to a real Georgia Tech preview, Sam had a couple comments uh, about the Roy Williams press conference because he watched it. So here's what Sam had to say. You know, the most sympathetic part of me really feels bad for Roy Williams because it's clear that he is trying everything he can with this team and that this is one of those years that comes around where the guys that he recruited and the guys that he expected to be the focal points of this team are just either not available or not as good as, as he anticipated. And that seems like it's sort of coming to a head now. I think that the, the multiple injuries that UNC has suffered are really, really pulling them down at this point because it's, it's really some of those key guys that are supposed to be producing for them. On the other hand, I mean, (laughs) you know, there is there is something a little bit fun about it because we we love listening to Roy Williams aw shucks his way through a press conference. But man, you gotta feel bad for the guy. He's he's had so much go wrong for him the last couple of years. Even in spite of making a couple of Final Fours and winning a championship, it seems like he just he just keeps piling it on himself. I don't know. Um, it was uh, it was sort of funny and sad to <laughs> to watch that press conference all at the same time. I kind of can't believe, by the way, that, that Sam felt some sympathy for Roy Williams. <laughs> Most Duke fans would not, but Sam is a bigger and better man than the rest of us for, for feeling that sympathy for Roy. Uh, so now let's get to actually previewing Georgia Tech. Um, uh, like I mentioned, they, they just beat Carolina, so they have to feel very confident, very good. Jose Alvarado had a huge game, and, and he... You know, it's worth noting that this Georgia Tech team, even though they're only 7-7 seven and seven overall... Uh, they had some losses early on that you can attribute to injuries and eligibility and things like that. A couple key players for them were were not available earlier in the season. Uh, one of those is Jose Alvarado, who had 25 points against Carolina um, and and eight assists, and and he's really the guy with the ball in his hands. You know, we've talked about on this podcast Duke cutting the head off the snake. Jose Alvarado is the head of the Georgia Tech snake, and and it will be essential for for Duke to uh, to limit him. Um, in a game that, you know, Tech probably feels like, you know, w- with the guys they've gotten back in the past four or five games, um, they probably feel like they are coming into their own and they're ready to compete with with better teams. And that victory over Carolina, I'm sure they'll be feeling really good about. You, you got anything to say about Georgia Tech as we uh, preview that game? So my prediction, Jason, is in the first five minutes of the game, we will see Jordan Goldwire into the ball game. I don't think he necessarily is going to start. When we're talking about you, you talked about Alvarado and how he is the focal point of their offense. I think Coach K has is learning at least at this point that bringing in Goldwire to shut down the best guard on the team 
uh, is going to take everybody else out of the game. And I think that is going to be evident straight from the beginning. I don't think Georgia Tech is a, you know, a you know, super killer place to play, but it is a road game in the ACC. It is a game where the team is going to likely be, you know, up for playing against the, the number two team in the country. And when that happens, you want to shut that down very quickly with intensity and with defense. And I think Jordan Goldwire is going to bring that, and that's going to fuel a lot of things. I also think uh, that Vernon Carey is going to have a really monster game because I think he matches up well with everybody on the team. And when I say match up really well, I mean mismatch. He is going to be one of the bigger guys on the floor, and he is going to be a guy that, you know, in 25 minutes, he's going to be very efficient uh, against Georgia Tech. So I'm looking for those two things, but I'm also just really overall – it's a road game. We don't get many of these. The intensity should be there from the opening tip like it has been the last couple of games. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about Georgia Tech, and, and, and it's worth noting, I, I meant to mention this when we were talking about the Miami game. When we previewed the Miami game, one thing that you and I focused on tremendously was the fact that Miami is a terrible rebounding team. And and because a great rebounding team, and and that that game bore out the fact that uh, Miami just you know they couldn't get offensive rebounds, they couldn't keep Duke off the offensive boards, and uh, I was dispiriting to Miami the fact that Duke was able to rebound so confidently against them. Georgia Tech is the same thing. Um, not they're not as bad as Miami, but Georgia Tech is one of the bottom 100 or so teams in the country at at rebounding. Um, and uh, again, Duke is a great rebounding team. Uh, Tech is going to need to shoot really, really well to have a chance in this game because they're probably not going to be able to battle the, the Blue Devils on the boards. Um, and so that's a key thing to look at in this game the same way we looked at it in the Miami game and the same way we predicted that that would be a problem for Miami. I predict that will be a problem for Georgia Tech. That leads us to the next game that we are previewing, Duke playing the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Um, uh, Wake is a team that uh, looked like they were in real trouble in the ACC, and then they, they were 0-2. Um, with losses to Boston College and NC State. Uh, and then uh, over the weekend, they picked up a win over Pittsburgh, um, uh, you know, a win that's sort of problematic. Uh, you know, I really hope that, that uh, Jeff Capel's boys would, would be able to take care of, of Wake Forest because um, that would have been a big win for Pitt. But instead, um, uh, Wake Forest goes on the road and beats Pittsburgh 69-65. to 65. Donald, you got anything to say about, about Wake Forest and what we should look forward to in that game? Yeah, I, I think when it comes to that, you know, we're back home in camera for that game, and I want to see our outside shooting take presence, take flight over that, because I feel like Wake Forest in the few games that I've seen this year, they get taken out by the three ball, and it, it really makes them stretch their defense. And of course, you know, with our interior presence, if the floor is spread out, they're going to have a lot of room to shine. So uh, if we go about the break, this is one where maybe Joey Baker uh, steps up. Again, we, we talk about these games where who's going to be the guy to step up. I feel like this is a game that's primed for a guy like uh, Joey Baker, maybe Al Alex O'Connell, to really have the open shooting. Uh, if they can knock those down, then maybe that spreads the floor out for Wake Forest, and that frustrates them. But uh, on defense, I'm looking for the same. I'm looking for tough, tenacious defense. Uh, the home crowd is going to be there. The students are going to be – most of them are going to be back um, by that game. So uh, I think we're ready to see – uh, Cameron come to life again, and that will hopefully take it out, uh, take take the way, uh, Wake Forest Demon Deacons out. But one of the things I always look at when I'm previewing these games is I I want to look at the advanced metrics and see you know what are teams really good at or really bad at that that I need to um, uh, we need to highlight uh, so people understand what Duke's going to need to do to win. And and with Wake Forest, one of the things that immediately sticks out is they are terrible at forcing turnovers. They're literally one of like the 15, 20 worst teams in the country at forcing turnovers. 
And you're you're right. They're, they they get beat a fair bit from three point range. Um, that that's that's something that is difficult for them. And they're they're not a team that likes to shoot a lot of three pointers. Um, if Wake is going to beat you, it's going to be on the inside. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about, about rebounding, and and Wake say they're not a great rebounding team, but they're a, they're a pretty good rebounding team. Um, they're especially good at defensive rebounding. Um, one of the top forty teams in the country at defensive rebounding. So to some extent, this is going to be one of those games where one of Duke's strengths, the other team is going to you know sort of matches us in strength in that in that area, and and it'll be interesting to see. But it's it's hard to see this Wake team. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're expected to be one of the worst teams in the in the conference. They've they've got some results. They, they really haven't beaten anyone of note. Um, uh, maybe Davidson. I mean, like Davidson, I think is the best. Davidson and, and Pitt um, uh, are the best teams they've beaten. The only top 100 teams they've beaten. And and they, they've lost, you know, they, they lost badly to Penn State. They, they lost, you know, they lost badly to NC State. They don't have a lot of impressive results. This feels like, especially at Cameron, it feels like a game that that Wake, you know, you don't want to be predicting twenty and thirty point wins, but I'll be a little surprised if Duke Duke doesn't take him out by twenty or thirty points. So it's time for us to talk about who had the best week this week for the Blue Devils. Donald, I will go to you first. Who was your player of the week? Uh, I'm going to go with Vernon Carey. Uh, Going home and playing well is a very difficult thing. I think more difficult than people realize. And for him to go to Miami and put on such an amazing performance in front of, of the school that his dad played at football, um, that's important. That's incredible to me. And and I'm going to give it to him also against Boston college. While he did not make as big a mark on the point side of the score sheet, his presence really made everything shine and make everything work and us blowing out the Eagles. So I am going with Vernon Carey. And Sam has given us a player of the week. Sam, who you got? For my player of the week nomination, I mean, like I said, I haven't gotten a chance to watch the games, but reading the recaps, looking at the box scores, reading all the commentary, I feel like you have to give it to Vernon Carey. He's turning into the most effective player on this team, even without playing 35 minutes. You know, he's only he's only playing 25 or so minutes a game and is still insanely productive is the focal point of the offense, is is where everyone's attention is, it seems like, when he has the ball or even when he doesn't, and is clearly Duke's, I think, front runner at this point for for national honors, and and the Miami game was only further evidence of that. So my player of the week this week is Vernon Carey. And I'm going to make it three for three. I am also going to select Vernon Carey as the player of the week. I, I like that you highlighted that Boston College game, that he did other stuff. His rim protection, you know, when Vernon Carey came to Duke, he did not have the reputation of, you know, one of these great run-jump athletes with really long arms who's going to swat a lot of balls. But Vernon Carey is a really, really good shot blocker. Against BC, he has four block shots and and really frustrated them at the rim. Um, and then, of course, against Miami, uh, it wasn't the block shots. It was the fact that they just couldn't stop him inside at all. Vernon Carey had a great week, and he is uh, all three of our Player of the Week. All right, we're getting ready to wrap things up here. Time for parting shots. I will let Sam go first. He recorded a parting shot about what's going on over there in Vietnam. Sam, take it away. All right, for my parting shot, I don't 
like I said, I've, I've been overseas for a little bit, so I haven't gotten to consume as much sports content as perhaps I normally would. So I'll give some thoughts from my trip. Like I said, I've been in Vietnam for a little bit over a week, currently in Saigon. I was in Hanoi earlier this week. We visited Halong Bay, um, visited a few other cities here. And I'd say that if you haven't been to this part of the world, uh, highly recommend. Vietnam is a, is a fascinating place, not only for the you know, the, the sort of history, the intertwined history with the U.S., um, but also just for their own general cultural heritage. And I'd say that the people that we've interacted with here have been overwhelmingly nice and, and welcoming to to tourists. So that's been, uh, it's been pretty cool. They have, it's a beautiful countryside. There's, there's obviously great food and uh, haven't gotten sick. So um, all of those things are, are positives in, to say um, Vietnam is fun. Go check it out. Uh, I think it's also you know, I don't want to get too political, but an interesting time to be here sort of in light of all the news around U.S. foreign policy this week. Um, it's just a, it's a good opportunity for me to reflect on um, kind of what happened here and sort of how it relates to, to what's going on today in the world. Uh, I love that he closed on, you know, that notion of being in Vietnam and foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy. Um, you know, there he is at the site of probably uh, most people would say the, the biggest foreign policy bungle in U.S. history. Full respect to the vets, not talking about the veterans, not talking about the effort that went into the Vietnam War, but just deciding to have a Vietnam War. Most people would probably agree with me is a big foreign policy problem. And I think it's really interesting that Sam is over there reflecting on that at this moment. Donald, what you got for me in your parting shot? So I, I'm not sure if this was uh, after the Boston College game or right before it. Uh, but Coach K had an interesting press conference where someone asked him about uh, the fact that he didn't win a very many regular season championships in the last decade. And he basically stuffled that real quick and was like, look, we, yes, we're trying to win. We're trying to win championships. We're trying to win games, but we're not. But we don't grade success off of regular season championships. And it got a lot of people talking and saying, oh, he doesn't care about the ACC and stuff. But what he really was pointing out in my mind is that if we had just won 10 regular season ACC championships, but had never won a national championship or even gone to a final four, people would call Duke down. They would say Duke is just a mediocre ACC team. Coach K has lost it. He should retire. All the haters would come out and say that. But the last decade was arguably the most successful decade that Coach K has ever had. He won two national championships. He had two, three teams on the brink of a final four. He won 300 games, as you pointed out, and only lost, he went an average of 30 and seven over an entire decade. Some teams don't win 30 games in a season ever. He averaged that over a 10 year period. And yeah, and we also won three ACC tournament championships. So this is the, this is the, you know, basically what Duke fans have to deal with. On one end, if we don't do this, they say, oh, you guys suck. If we do do it and we don't worry about the things that we don't do, that are lesser than people say, oh, well, you, you guys are worried about the wrong things. When it comes to Duke, when it comes to Coach K, we have instilled in our program the expectation that we are competing for ACC championships and national championships. But I think what has been lost over the last, especially the last couple of years, is that success is different every single year. Getting to a Final Four may be success. Getting to a Sweet 16 can also be a successful season. And winning an ACC championship can be as well. But if we don't do 
one of those things, that doesn't mean the rest of the season has gone to waste. It means that we are learning, we are growing as a team and as a program. And I think Coach K really epitomized that with his press conference that he had a few days ago. So, uh, Jason, I don't know if you saw that uh, press conference or at least saw the, the comments that he had and the hoopla around it. But give me your take on, on what you think success is and if regular season championships are involved in that. So uh, I, I didn't see the press conference. I, you know, I'm not live or I haven't watched the whole thing. I have, like you, I have heard about the controversy is the wrong word, but the, the response, so to speak, to Coach K's comments about um, uh, regular season titles. The first thing I would note in all of that is there's no such thing as an ACC regular season title anymore. There hasn't been one for quite a while. When you don't have a true round robin, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and we know that just based on the fact that Duke's um, permanent double opponent, the you know the team that Duke plays twice every single year is North Carolina. And North Carolina is consistently, not this year maybe, but Virtually every year, Carolina is one of the top three, top four teams in the conference. We know that Duke's playing a tougher regular season ACC schedule than most other teams. But you're right. The bottom line is teams have goals. Teams have things they're trying to achieve. Um, I'm not saying ACC regular season title doesn't matter. But in the grand scheme of things, I, that's it's kind of far down my list of most important, most important things that you want to get. And um, would I would I like to have more ACC regular season titles? Sure, uh, sure. I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, um, it means <laughs> probably means more number one seeds. Although Duke got a, a lot of number one seeds this past decade, but ACC tournament titles, NCAA titles, to me, that's what feels like the the ultimate goal is the most important thing. And uh, you know, to be honest, if you're asking Coach K about this, it's because you're trying to find something. You know, you're you're like, hey, right. maybe I can gin up a controversy, and this guy succeeded. Hey, I ginned up a controversy here because you ain't asking Coach K about ACC or regular or uh, NCAA titles and and getting any controversy. So, hey, let, let's figure something out. Hey, here's the guy who won who won two gold medals and two national titles and a bunch of ACC tournament titles. I'll ask him about ACC regular season titles. There you go. It's, it's meaningless. It's silly. It's silly. And really, it, and this is one of the things, I mean, the ACC, the official champion is the ACC tournament champion. I think it wasn't until 1990 that AC, the ACC even started allowing schools to recognize the regular season titles. So it's not like we're sitting here and, and you know, a lot of those had to, you know, predate like the Helm stuff. It's not like we're not trying to go for that. But if we don't win the ACC regular season championship, but get to a final four, I'm going to call that season successful and it, it, other people yeah. may not see it that way, but if that also they're coming from a, a progress of a, a point of people where they probably don't get to a final four. So winning the regular season championship for them is everything. That's fine. But for us, we are worried about, so we have so many goals that we're, we're accomplishing. If we don't achieve one, but achieve others, that all still makes it a successful season. I am in full agreement with you. All right, time for my parting shot. And I want to talk about something that you've started to hear bubble up. And I, I, I want to note for the record, I was on this. I started taking notes on this. I started thinking and talking about this with myself, at least, uh, about a week ago. I had a bunch of notes that I took on this. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to make that my next parting shot. And then suddenly it kind of blew up into something that, that people are talking about all over the place. And that is Vernon Carey for National Player of the Year. Um, uh, 
this has been a weird season in college basketball because the guys who are the top draft picks, the guys who are going to go at the, the beginning of the lottery are, are being drafted on potential and being drafted on, you know, what the end, what the NBA is looking for and what the NBA is looking for and what college basketball is looking for two very, very different things. Um, and as a result, the guys, you know, that are going to go at the top of the draft really, I don't think any of them really are contenders for even first team all American, let alone player of the year. Um, the, the guys that are being talked about are guys like Jordan Nora of, of Louisville, Caleb Wesson of Ohio state, um, certainly Cassius Winston. Um, there are a few other guys out there that people are talking about a little bit, but it's, there's a lot, there's more and more talk about Vernon Carey and uh, look, Vernon Carey's stats are tremendously impressive. Uh, but the thing to think about with him that is truly remarkable is that he's doing what he's doing this year while playing very limited minutes, 18.4 points per game, nine rebounds per game, 62% field goals, blocking more than two shots per game. And he is only averaging 23.7 minutes per game. In fact, a friend of mine, Eric Rothschild, sent me an email about this. And he pointed out that if you look at Vernon Carey's points per, per minute, points per 40 minutes, however you want, points per 36, there are all kinds of different metrics there. But if you look at his points, rebounds, blocks per minute, and all that other stuff, Vernon Carey scores more than Zion Williamson, Marvin Bagley, Jaleel Okafor. In fact, a lot more than most of them. Not, not a lot more than Zion, but a little more than Zion. He rebounds a lot more rebounds per minute than Zion Williamson, Marvin Bagley, Jaleel Okafor, Wendell Carter. Block shots. Vernon Carey blocks more shots per minute than Zion Williamson. More than Marvin Bagley, more than Wendell Carter, more than Jaleel Okafor. Win shares, which is, you know, this one of these advanced metric kind of things that, you know, that figures out how your stats and all kinds of other stuff contribute to your overall game. Vernon Carey has more win shares per minute than Zion Williamson does. I mean, Zion was a statistical and athletic freak. Zion had that season last year. We were like, wow, this is something we haven't seen something like this before. Um, guess what? We're kind of a little bit seeing it again, at least statistically, in terms of production. We're kind of seeing it again with Vernon Carey. And he is absolutely, even only playing 23.7 minutes per game, Vernon Carey is very much in the conversation for National Player of the Year as a freshman. That, that just doesn't happen very often. And a hat tip from me. I mean, this it, people didn't expect this. We knew Vernon Carey would be good. We knew he'd be an impact player. He was the jewel of the Duke um, freshman class. But he wasn't no one. I'm telling you, no one expected him to be as good in the paint, as good a rim protector, as impressive a rebounder as he has been thus far this season. So I, I am all on the Vernon Carey for player of the year bandwagon. Jason, uh, I had, I have heard a lot of that talk. Uh, and as, as you said, has been growing over the last couple of weeks. I think the funny, the funny thing about this, and this is kind of indicative of what college basketball is this year. The nitpicky thing that people are using to say that he doesn't deserve it is that is that stat you just pointed out that he only plays 23.4 minutes a game. And someone's like the national player of the year should be playing 35 minutes a game and shouldn't be playing 23 minutes a game. But, if you want that's Vernon Carey to play more, yes, yeah, sir. If you want him, if college basketball wants him to play more and be just as effective, then you could just hand us a national championship right now. 
and you can hand him all the awards. But if we're if really we're getting down to the point where we're like, I don't like him because he only plays 20 minutes a game. We need to we need to check ourselves. He is one of the best players, if not the best player in the country. And the you know, all the talk about him uh, being on the shortlist for any and all national player of the year uh, uh, awards is very more than well deserved. And hopefully he keeps it going. Hopefully, you know, this this train keeps rolling. But right now he is one of the best players in the country. And there's no denying that no matter how many minutes he plays. Well, and I'll tell you, the other thing is, so if you don't like the fact he's only playing 23.7 minutes per game, uh, be, be more of a challenge for Duke. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guarantee you, he'll play a little more if we're in games that are actually in doubt. Um, it's been a little while since we had many games that were really in doubt late in the game. So uh, Vernon Carey isn't playing a lot because Duke's beaten the spank off of everybody right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, come on out and, and challenge these Blue Devils. Uh, make us you know, put us in a game where we need more from Vernon Carey than than the typical 18 and 9 that he's getting every game and two block shots that he's getting every game. Like how demoralizing is that? Like for another team, right? They're like, hey, this dude, we should get him to play like 18, 20 minutes. Oh, he still had 24 points and 10 boards and four blocks and, yeah. and three steals. Like yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, we really, you know, if you look, we haven't really been, and I don't know if this is something to be concerned about or not. I, I can't decide. Since since the Stephen F. Austin disaster, <laughs> the craziness of Stephen F. Austin, I guess that Winthrop, remember that Winthrop game was, it was kind of, I mean, we ended up winning by 13. It was kind of close, but, I, you know, Michigan State, we won by 12. It didn't even feel as close as that. Virginia Tech, we won by 14. Um uh, you know, it, it was that was a good game at halftime, but Duke ran away with that. We blow Wofford out by 30. We blow Brown out by 25. That was competitive still into the second half until Joey Baker, like, went off. Wasn't that the game, Joey Baker? Or Alex O'Connor? Yeah, that was a Joey Baker. Or, I don't know. They all blend together. Somebody, <laughs> somebody went off in the second half. I think Brown was the Alex O'Connell game. But anyway. Yes. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, we win by 25. And then this week, we, we've got a, a 39 and a 33-point victory. Uh, you know, it's it's been since November since Thanksgiving that Duke's played a game where the result was in doubt with five, seven minutes left in the game with the hell with 10 minutes left in the game. Um, so uh, you're complaining about Vernon Carey. Sorry. We're beating the, the pants off of everyone so badly that Vernon Carey isn't getting more minutes. Good luck. Georgia tech wake Forest, at, at, at causing that to happen this week. Absolutely. All right. That's going to do it for us on episode 180 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Donald, thanks for taking time out from your fine Hawaiian vacation to join me. And uh, Sam, thanks for taking time from your Vietnam vacation to join us uh, digitally through through the magic of the interweb, sending your, your voice to us uh, so that the folks out there could hear you. We will be back, of course, next week. Uh, like I mentioned, um, I'll be at the Georgia Tech game. And uh, if I got something really cool that I get, um, you know, from the from the players' locker room, we may do may do a little special podcast midweek uh, to let folks hear that. Um, but uh, for Donald and Sam, I am Jason Evans in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, Duke Band. It is your turn. Take us home. <laughs>